Welcome to What They Never Told Us, the podcast where we explore our own personal journeys in the hopes to give you some insight into your own narrative. I'm your host, Sasha, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm your host, Crystal, licensed social worker. Yes, we are mental health professionals. However, we are not experts on anyone else but ourselves. You are the only expert on you. The information shared or discussed on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Ooh, today we got one of our faves, uh, one of our personal faves here to do another installation of Men in Therapy. Um, but, you know, we gotta, we know him, we love him, but we gotta let you know what he's all about. So, Sasha, can you introduce our guest? Our guest is a very special friend, both to Crystal and I. We both worked with him in different uh, settings. His name is Ramon, and he was born in the Dominican Republic and raised in the South Bronx. He earned his bachelor's degree from Baruch College and is currently in his fourth year in the university at Albany's Counseling Psychology doctoral program. Shout out to all my psych folk. I love y'all. Broadly speaking, (laughs) his research interests include racism's effect on mental well-being. I mean, definitely broadly speaking. Absolutely. Welcome, Ramon. Hey, hey. Thanks for inviting me, guys, or ladies, folks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, Ramon, you're uh, a loyal listener, so you know we got to do our check-ins. So Uh-oh. you know what? We're going we're gonna to let you start it off this week. Sure. Um, I'm feeling a whole bunch of things. Feeling, one, feeling great. Like you don't, I guess you don't realize just how much uh, a stressor is like affecting your body until it's gone. Um, so I had like this lingering test that's been on my mind for like months, and then the closer I got to it, the worse my body felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that it's gone, it's like I don't know. I could breathe. Like my body just feels healthy. Um, I'm also nervous about today. About this podcast, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, because we're like gonna be all up in your business. Yeah, <laughs> damn, I mean, all vulnerable, exposed. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's good. This is what we're trying to promote. So <laughs> let's let's put a more positive spin on that. You're gonna be vulnerable and exposed. Yeah, I'm, it's not ang- it's not anxiety. It's it's, it's uh, excitement. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's I what's like going that. on. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I am excited. It's gonna be fun. Um, yeah, so that's, that's where I'm at. Um, just like I was talking to you the other day about how my body feels versus how my mind is feeling, uh, or the thoughts that come to mind. Um, mentally, I know that I'm, I'll be all right, but my body is like its own thing. And it's like, ah, <laughs> so yeah, I guess the, the more we talk, the more my body will realize that it's it's okay. So, yeah. I'm going to piggyback off of what you said because you, you spoke about something that I've been experiencing and I'm frustrated as fuck really recently. Like, very recently. I do a lot of work. My mind is there, right? But just because your logic is there, the feelings aren't always in line and that's what's affecting your body. 
And I, that's exactly what has been happening to me as well, where I'm like, yeah, my mind is set. I'm good. And I know logically this is where I want to be. And then my feelings get in the way there. And it's a lot of fear. It's a lot of insecurity. It's a, it's a lot of shit from your past. And then you just get fucking frustrated because that's how I've been feeling fucking frustrated. Um, so yeah, I get you, but I, and I, and I appreciate you and I applaud the, the fact that you consistently show up, even though there's a huge mismatch because that takes a lot of energy out of you. Um, and I'm applauding myself as well because fuck, I'm tired. <laughs> For sure. It's like, we have no choice but to yeah. show up. Yeah. I'm doing all right. I've been taking a lot of emotional L's lately. Um, not, yeah. I think there's just the things that I've been involved in have really taken a few hits at my ego, and I just have not been handling it very well. So I'm trying to think positively, um, but also just be with whatever comes up. So I don't, I don't know. I can't tell you that I, I really know what the fuck I'm doing right now besides just existing and showing up to the few things that I need to show up to. Um, so, yeah, I'm just hoping that there's a light at the end of this tunnel because it doesn't feel like it right now. But, um, yeah, not feeling great. But I'm here. We're here. <laughs> um, and, and, and it applies to you, too. Shout out to you for still showing up, right? you're still doing it and i don't think we get enough credit uh, or we give ourselves enough credit for sure and also acknowledging like what's going on with yourself i think oftentimes i'll speak for myself also oftentimes like i'll feel it in my body and i just don't know where it's coming from mm-hmm. but it feels like you like nailed it like okay this is what's going on mm-hmm. so i think oh, that's yeah, no. it's been very obvious yeah. <laughs> i can tell you where it's coming from um yeah so, um, but no, I definitely have those moments where I'm like, oh, I don't understand. Like, I'll feel it in my body before I know it logically, like where it's coming from. This time, it's, it's definitely not that. I very logically know what's happening. I just don't know what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> we can jump in to get to know a little bit more about you, because I don't know about our listeners, but I'm already interested because I feel like you have a lot of insight um, into yourself. And I know that you are, you know, obviously getting your PhD, but when was the first time that like you were even interested in psychology, mental health, like period, like how did you even go down this path? Um, yeah, it's funny. Cause I went to Baruch college, which is known to be a business school. Um, but Oh man, this could be a long-winded story. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but um, see, it all started when I was five. No, um, I was for real. That's when it started. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. You like it's the little things, right? And it builds yeah. up. Um, well, no, but you I know think... what? Tell us, tell us the story. I want to hear this. I don't think I've Absolutely. heard this. No, so it it wasn't really when I was five. It was uh in high school. <laughs> okay. Um, high school, I was um. You guys know what uh, the summer youth experience is. Yeah. Um, so I worked there uh, my junior year uh, that summer and worked at a daycare. And I remember like the the owner of the daycare split us up. It was like eight of us. Like, they split up the, the, the workers. 
to work with the students, I mean, the little kids. And they were like, yeah, I want y'all to teach them math. And we were like, okay, cool. And I got, you know, assigned with this eight-year-old kid who was significantly bigger and older than the other kids. Like the other kids, like four, four years old, five years old. And this kid was uh, taller, like sizably, like he was just bigger and obviously older. And, you know, I was working with him and it was clear that he did a no audition. Mind you, he's in third grade. They don't know what basic addition. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Um, all right. So I'm working with him, teaching him like how to use his fingers. And this other worker who was like, not from the summer youth, but she was like, she worked there. She walked by and she was like, oh, you, you're still teaching him this? Like, he's not going to learn. I, I'm not lying. Like, when she said that, I couldn't, I thought she was joking. And I was waiting for the punchline. I'm like, oh, this is shit. not real. And I look at his face and he was like, shocked. Like, that's shocked, but like, like he realized like yeah like it's true kind of thing um and i was sat there i was like all right nah this is not gonna happen so i don't know i felt more motivated to help him teach him to use his fingers and he was figuring it out picking it up and he got it and then i was like all right cool gave him a little test he got him then we went to multiplication Taught him that he got that, and he was so excited. He was like, "Oh, look! I could do math! I could do math!" Jumped up, showed everybody, uh, showed the the workers, and um, they were like, "Yeah, yeah, all right, sit down, sit down." And that fucking now, bitch. Yes, yes. He was okay. like, "Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, whatever. Sit down, sit down." Went to the owner of the of the daycare. He was like, "Get out the office. Go sit down. You can't be here." It was like constantly being shut down, like invalidated. And his mother shows up to pick him up. And he's again, he's excited. He's like, look, I could do math. Look, look, look. He's like, yeah, yeah, get your stuff. We got to go. And it's that's when it hit me. I was like, oh, man, like, this is a third grader. They don't know basic addition. Clearly, I, it's not that I was an amazing teacher. Like, he obviously had it in him, right? Just no one sat down and gave him the chance and gave him that hope that he could learn it, right? Like, not just that, but if you look, that, like, in a matter of a few hours, like, he was invalidated by all of these adults, um so i can only imagine like the rest of his life like how often this happens mm. um so I, I, that was i would say the first seed in my head like just the power of motivation and inspiration versus like invalidation and how easy both can be just sitting down with him like it was like all he needed versus just shutting him down was can be like the thing that shuts him down um mm. you know like completely so yeah that was the first seed yeah, into Baruch, and you know, you guys know I was I'm a part of the Urban Male Leadership Academy program. It's a program for young men of color in the uh, Opportunity Program at Baruch College, and mm-hmm. we have Saturday workshops. Um, we talk about mental health, um, what it means to be a man of color, and one person in particular, um, Andrew, who was one of the first, he's uh, the OG facilitator of the uh the program now he's a director he um just seeing him work with the students working with us and then the next like two years later i worked with him as a facilitator and just seeing the behind the scenes of how he navigates the conversations take note like noticing how he backs up and lets the students take over adapting to changes i'm like man this is crazy uh, it's amazing like how much emotions you could pick up um just by just listening and giving them the space. So, yeah, that's when I realized, like, okay, this is, I think, the avenue that I want to go down on. Nice. Yeah. So 
was that the moment where you were like, I'm open to going to therapy? Or did it take you a little bit of time? Because I know that I was interested in psych as an undergrad, right? But yo, the actual action of me doing it, because there's so much shame that comes with it. And like people look at you like you're crazy, especially like because we're both in, from the Latinx culture. Um, was that the moment you were like, this is cool? Or did it take you a little bit of more time to be like, um, I'll go to therapy now? <laughs> That's a great insight. <laughs> So it's so funny. Like, so the daycare story was 2008 uh, when I started facilitating workshops with Andrew. That was 2012, right? And I applied to my doctoral program in 2017. So huge difference, right? In in time, mm-hmm. the the moment that I decided to go to therapy was the summer before I applied to oh, wow. graduate school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, years, almost 10 years since that first seed. Um, yeah, and that's exactly why I think it's like this, I guess, shame. And like knowing logically, again, knowing like how beneficial it could be, right? I'm literally embarking on this journey, knowing I'm going to I'm gonna sign up for this to become a psychologist because I know it works. But for myself, it's like, okay, yeah, it works for everyone else, but not mm. for me. And that's it's not for me kind of thing, right? And then you add in the layers of being the man of color um, and how you got to be tough. You got to be resilient. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that played a big role. My religious upbringings as well. Mm-hmm. Growing up, like, oh, no, you don't talk about mental health. You just, you know, lean on God. Um, yeah, all of that, I think, was playing a big role. But, yeah, I, I felt like I needed to go to therapy. Like, it took... Uh, a significant stressor for me to be like, okay, I need help. So yeah, you're it's a good question. Yeah. So you, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about being a man of color and your religious upbringing. Like, how were you coping prior to getting to therapy? Because I know, um, you know, society tells you, man up, don't cry, you know, like all of these things. And then religion is like, just pray to God. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he'll take care of you. Be a good person. They're good. You know, like you'll be safe. Like, you know, just keep moving forward. Right. So I feel like in a lot of ways, you know, going back to that eight, that eight year old, like you were like, I think like the messages are also very invalidating. Right. So like, how Mm -hmm. are you coping to get yourself even to the point where you can go to college, apply for a PhD program? Um, How are you taking care of yourself? So most of my life I was religious. Right. So that, that was my source of strength. Like, when I tell you, like, in middle school, I was more religious than my parents. Like, I'm not joking. <laughs> uh, and it was important for me at that moment, those times, because just my environment was just so insane. Like, I, I had to lean towards religion um, for support. Um, but then when I went to college, you know, started questioning a lot. I mean, I was questioning a lot in high school. So when I stopped being a Christian. And then, but I was still, I still believed in God. Then in college, I stopped believing in God. So that source of strength was gone. It's like, okay, I'm on my own. And yeah, to answer your question, avoidance. That's how I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> avoidance. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, you know, like. <laughs> Not Sasha know. laughing, girl. <laughs> Straight no, up. it's funny. Like, <laughs> not though. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yo, laugh at 
You gotta laugh at the pain. You gotta laugh at the pain. Laughing is a good defense mechanism. All right. Yep. It's a it's a it's a higher it's one of the higher functioning defense mechanisms, right? It is. Uh, it's less <laughs> less primitive because the primitive ones are avoidance, right? Like so, yo, yeah. I'm on. I'm out here doing some work. Oh uh, no, yeah. I'm kidding. I just I'm kidding. No, I just it's not funny. You're right. No, I just it's it's because I know you. It's because I know you. That's uh huh. Uh huh. It's a pattern. <laughs> um. No, yeah, avoidance. <laughs> Sorry, <no. laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I have friends I can speak about these things with, but you know, you can't always rely on your friends. You know, like, and it got to the point where it's like, okay, I can't just go to my friends, and and you know, unfortunately, like the word the burden came up, right? Like, okay, I don't want to burden my friends mm. with this. Uh, I need a professional. Because, all right, let me give you some context of what was happening that summer. My supervisor was um, getting ready to leave to a new job. And we were close. Like, he was the man. Shout out to Phil. His boss, which she was the the boss of, like, Seek and CD, all these things. She was retiring. So my chain of commands was, was gone. So I had to now take on the role that Phil had, my supervisor, which was, you know, leading... Like this assessment committee, um, figuring out how to like other assessment tools to support the Seek and CD programs um, and other programs as well. Um, on top of that, I was you know going to the gym to help me, you know, build my resilience, mental health, all of these things. And I got injured. Like I pulled like this muscle you know near my glutes. It was it was bad, so I couldn't use the gym anymore to cope. And also, I was also studying for the GREs. Oh shit! So all of these things was going on. Uh, I'm like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> like, it was just so much to handle, and you know, I could have just said, you know, fuck it, not doing anything anymore. But I was like, I don't, I don't think I have that. That's a choice. Um, so what are my options? And luckily, during that time, my friend was going to Miami to celebrate her birthday. And I was like, you know what? Let me let me go with them. So that was like a, you no, know, it's like escaping, but also just like taking a quick break from New York City and like that environment. Um, so if you have that privilege, I always say take it. So I did that for it was, it was like a four day thing. I changed my diet completely. Like that was I don't know if I would recommend that. But I honestly anecdotal evidence, I felt incredible after I went vegan. No longer vegan, but that that initial shift, probably like the amount of plants I was eating, all of that like the fruits, like that changed my body significantly. Um, went to physical therapy. My physical therapist says, you're fine. Just warm up. So I went back to the gym. And then I went to therapy and went for two days. And honestly, what the crazy part is, I didn't really discuss the stressors in therapy. I talked about older stuff, like relationship things. And just, I guess, being heard and validated was what I needed. It's crazy how that works. But yeah, there's just two days. And I was like, you know what? I'm cured. <laughs> Obviously, that was a lie that I told myself. And it came back to haunt me later. But yeah, it gave me that, that push to pull through. So let's do the timeline. So you only stood in therapy for two times, two sessions, and then you stopped? Yeah, two sessions at that time. Okay. And that was, this what... was 2017. And then? what made my, What made me go back? Yeah, yeah. Um, went back the next year after I entered the program because that was a pff, my God. I thought I was stressed before, 
entering the PhD program was insane. Um, I was the only man of color in my cohort and imposter syndrome came in, like just bursting through the door. Like it was crazy. I mean, I was getting A's, but I wasn't internalizing it. Like it was the craziest thing. And I was like, okay, this isn't, I know this isn't normal. Um, so I went and I went to the uh, counseling center for the school. And um, it wasn't the best, I'm not going to be honest. Like they, there was a cultural mismatch with my uh, therapist. So I left and then I looked for a Latina um, therapist. She was cool. But again, I think she was too, uh, she was trying to connect too much, like, it almost felt like she was assuming too much of my struggles because we were both uh, Latinx. And eventually I went to, then I stopped. I was like, you know, I'm done. I don't need therapy anymore. <laughs> Again, another mistake. <laughs> uh, and I went back because I got all A's. So I had a 4.0 that semester and I came back the next semester, not internalizing it again. And that was the biggest spiral I've had in my mental health in years. Yeah, so then I went to this new therapist, and she was like a coach kind of thing. So, yeah, it took it took like a lot of trial and error. So but, pause. Yeah, yeah. A, shout out to you for getting into a PhD program. Uh, fucking love it. Super. I get. I have a lot of pride in me when I see like, especially Latinx folks just doing more. Right. I love it. Um, thank you. B, thank you. let's not forget that you were avoiding everything prior to that. Right. So. We have to start, and this is something that I want to mention about um, behavioral patterns and how I think that people pick and choose how they 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 view the the effect of what it is that they're doing on them. It's almost like you can avoid your feelings, but then you can't avoid other things, right? Uh, wrong. Your avoidance made you susceptible to imposter syndrome because here you are avoiding the good stuff as well, and you could yeah. not internalize how you were showing up and it just, it was very difficult for you. So that was something that kind of put you on that path already to, to kind of be, and I'm sorry to say, is be in, an, in like a worse off position, right? These are things sure. you have to start noticing. Yeah. No, the imposter syndrome was something that I think haunted me for a long time. And I just never sat with it and really like unpacked it. Um, so I got into the program, never really looking into the mirror and like, you know, fully assessing myself. And sometimes, you know, I, it, it takes an experience like this to really confront it, right? Like, like this is why you need to experience hardships uh, to a certain extent um, to really learn about yourself. So I'm grateful that that happened in that context, like, and not something worse. Um, and obviously, I had my friends involved as well, but. Um, Oh yeah, avoidance was big. I actually want to rewind back to to something you kind of touched upon a little bit. You didn't really get into details, but it showed up for me at least. I I want to know how did growing up within the Latinx culture, or even like let's just specify, like let's make this a little more specific in the Dominican culture, being religious affect your view of going to therapy, and how did you deal with what and I'm gonna assume out here, but with what I'm sure came up as dissonance within you in regards to like being a therapist, going to therapy, and then having these other identities. Yeah. 
So I will say, um, you know, we speak about inter intersectionality, right? Like all these identities. A part of my identity was also being like, I always felt like I was different. Like I wasn't truly, and this is, you know, there's a whole nother layer of discussion, but I wasn't really a Dominican, you know? Like I was, you know, too, too Dominican for New York and to uh, New York for uh, Dominican Republic. So I was never really like either or, it felt like. But even then, I was also like, I always had the identity of being like a nerd, right? Like I, I, liked, I liked to learn. I liked uh, video games. I liked, uh, I don't know, like just the identity of nerd, like I really felt comfort in that. So I always felt like I was different. So when they, the idea of therapy came in, I think I probably had an easier time to accept it than maybe other folks. Uh, so I'll start with that. But that doesn't mean that like, it was completely easy, right? Like um, just therapy is not something that ever came up in our household unless it was something really significant. Like, oh, yeah, this person's crazy. Um, so, yeah, I think... I did. I don't think I ever told. I didn't tell my parents that I was going to therapy. For example, um, I mean, I think for several reasons. One of which was probably shame, but I told myself it was to protect them because I didn't want them to like worry. Because here I am, their their child out in Albany, away from home, and they're struggling with mental health. Like that would probably <laughs> put them in a spiral. There's that. There's the idea of being a man and like. Oh, you can't figure it out yourself, really. Like you're not a man. Like you gotta. This is what you have to do. This is what life is about. Your grandparents didn't go to therapy. Your father didn't go to therapy. There was a whole lineage of family members who never went to therapy. Um, and they figured it out. Like that, that. Those are the thoughts that I had to struggle with, right? And realizing, like, yeah, they didn't go to therapy, but they struggled. <laughs> you know, like everyone goes through pains, but you know, suffering is a choice, kind of thing. So I realized, like, in order to stop that cycle, like, I, this is, this will have to do for myself. Um, and then now, like, I speak about it all the time. Like, I, <laughs> I, I talk to my parents about therapy. I try to convince them. Like, my mom, my mom is more open to therapy. My sister's going to therapy. Like, it's this is it's becoming the you know, a big change. Um, so I like to I like to think that I played the role in that. So. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely did. You definitely did. I was about to be like, you look at you over here, a catalyst of change. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking the exact thing. Yeah, you're in my mind. Uh, absolutely. That's fucking amazing. Yeah. I was also feeling a little bit triggered. I was like, you know, like a whole lineage <laughs> that didn't, you know, like, and they figured it out and you can't figure it out. So I will say, I was over here like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Mm -hmm. The first generation children of immigrant experience is so particular for this reason, because our parents didn't experience what we experienced. There's no sense of any kind of uh, recognition of what we're going through as their children. All they know is that, oh, like, we gave them a better life. And then there's a, an insane amount of pressure. They've never been to college. They've mm -hmm. never done these things. And then we're expected to do things the way they did. And it's real fucking hard. To, yep. to piece that those different parts of yourself together so i think that that's yeah. i just wanted to clarify that a little more because it's, it's it's a little unfair yeah yeah 
it's it's always unfair when you compare your your life stories, right? Like I don't want to invalidate their experiences, right? Because they went through some shit. And when I hear their stories, like it's like superhuman stuff. Uh, when I when I hear it, um, and also I don't want to validate my own experience, like you said, because you know, the racism that I've experienced completely different from the racism that my parents experienced when they moved here. Like it's it's a different context. Um, and for my mind, it's. Like my dad experienced overt racism, right? And um, he had trouble internalizing that, understanding that, and naming it. So ironically, it almost felt like he was able to avoid it, right? And just okay, this is this is what life is. Let me go home. So I don't know if it haunted him as much. For me, I think I know what the beast looks like. Like I, I face it. Like I know what it is. I name it. It's it lives inside of me. It's you know. And I, I know I'm using a lot of metaphors here, uh, but this is how I try to conceptualize racism. But that, the imposter syndrome was really white supremacy. This this was what, what I was struggling with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I named it. And yeah, just struggling with that and how that can affect my future as a psychologist. And like, if I can't figure this out, what does my future look like as a psychologist working with young people of color? So there was a lot packed in um, that I don't know. I can't even explain that to my father, for example, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't have the words to break that down. So it's a whole different experience. It's not like worse or better. It's just different. Right. So, I mean, I think that was even just what you said now about unpacking. Like, there was a lot to the imposter syndrome that it was white supremacy. Um, so can you maybe talk a little bit about, I guess, what your work in therapy has looked like? What have you learned about yourself? What are some tools that you've walked away with? Oof, man. It's so, so much. Um, yeah, before I, I answered that as well, like it's, it was a mix of things, right? Like, again, I had the privilege of learning to be a therapist. On top of my therapy sessions, I was able, I was also learning theory in class um i was also working as a therapist we're learning from the clients themselves and i don't think that's often talked about like i learned the shit ton of things from my clients <laughs> like it's incredible but that's another discussion but um for me the big things that i've learned is just the sheer amount of like black and white thinking that i was having mm. like it's crazy just how much i you know was um, thinking about the world in, in that binary perspective, right? And again, that's I'm learning now that it's, that's associated with like anxiety and like adrenaline. So just to break that down very simply, like apparently uh, when you think about evolutionary speaking, like evolutionary perspective, when you when you encounter like uh, a big stressor or danger, your adrenaline spikes up and you don't have time for nuance. Right. It's like, okay, this animal is either going to kill me or it's not. Right. It's either good or bad. So the black and white thinking is important. Right. But now, like, we live in a more safe environment, like, relatively speaking. Right. Really, it's not life or death. So we're able to have more nuance. So for me, like, growing up with um, so much adrenaline, so much anxiety, I have to unlearn that and remind myself that I'm in a safe place now, remind myself that I have tools. And I'm able to think more 
more nuanced, more it's things are more in the, live more in the spectrum. Two things can coexist at the same time. Like they, they don't have to contradict each other. Um, so the big one for me was ideas of like intelligence. Like that was man, like a big trigger. Um, like am I intelligent enough, right, to pursue a PhD? Like who the hell do I think I am pursuing this kind of thing? Uh, coming from the South Bronx, um, where no one uh, that I knew had a PhD. Right. Like no one that I know went to graduate school. Right. So learning like to unlearn that and like how intelligence is poorly misunderstood, like being more self-compassionate and acknowledging my strengths. Like where where do I shine when it comes to like intelligence um, and leaning in on that? Um, stop comparing myself, things like that. Uh, man, it's, it's a lot. Like I could go down a whole list of things where my black and white thinking, you know, examples of that. Ideas of masculinity was a big one uh, that I had to unpack. It's crazy. Like I was facilitating workshops about masculinity and I couldn't really internalize it for myself. So like I had very rigid ideas of what it meant to be a man that I wasn't really confronting. So I'm unpacking that as well. Can you speak to those ideas a little bit? Sure. Uh, yeah. As a man, right? So, so I'll give you an example straight up. Like, I remember the last time. So this is when I was going and going to therapy. I remember the last time that I cried, and it was twelve years prior. Yeah, the last time I cried was when my grandmother passed away, and it was only because I saw my father cry at the funeral, mm. and that was the second time I ever saw him cry. Like he broke down and it was like, per- he gave all the men in the room permission to cry. It felt like, cause like, this is, this is Ramon. Like, <laughs> you know, like he was like the, the big brother. Right. So when he broke down, got on his knees and started crying, it gave all of us permission. Like, okay, we're allowed to cry. And we all cried in unison before that. It was two years prior. His best friend passed away and he walked into his room and DR and just saw all the pictures and just broke down. And then it was like one by one, everyone started crying like dominoes. That was the last time I cried. Uh, his mother cried. So think, imagine that, like it, it took a significant, like this is your best friend and your mother passing away. Like that's what it takes to give yourself permission to cry. Anything else is like not enough. I also think it's so interesting how much power your dad was holding, that he had the power to move the entire room. Like, all of these men that were Mm -hmm. holding on to the same idea of masculinity, like, he, because he broke down, then everyone else felt like they could show their emotions. And to think how, in how many other scenarios that same thing is happening, someone refuses to be the first to, like, break down or kind of break through through those emotions and now every it's it's a domino effect it's like okay you can go in the direction of feeling your emotions and then everyone feels okay or you can stick to these ideas of masculinity and hold it in and everyone else will follow suit so i think like there's just it's such an interesting dynamic how much Mm -hmm. one individual holds power over the collective yeah for sure like uh, how i'll expand on that uh it just shows how much anyone can hold power Right. Like mm-hmm. for my dad to, to give himself permission to cry. Right. Like that's leadership. Right. Mm-hmm. In a sense. Um, just like I, how I decided, OK, I'm going to go to therapy and I'm going to talk about it in my house. Like that's to me is leadership. 
it's like to take that risk to fall in you know um, on top of your values and say okay this is this is um this makes sense to me this is what's right and other people would respect you for it and then like okay this person did it so i could do it but again to answer your question um sasha um ideas and masculinity masculinity uh yeah so i cried then and then I remember this was actually in my supervision when I was, you know, um, serving as a therapist for my, in my first semester uh, as, as a therapist. Um, my supervisor was the one who told me, like, yeah, it sounds like you're not giving yourself permission to cry because I told you that. And that was the first time that I had that perspective. Like, holy shit. Like, that makes sense. Like, that's mm-hmm. the language that I needed. It's not that I can't cry. I'm not giving myself permission. And just that lens, it almost, it felt Like, like I had power, you know what I mean? Like, it's not that I can't do it. It's I always had the power to do it. And ironically, that's very, you know, masculine to say like, yeah, I'm going to give myself permission. I'm going to be brave enough to be vulnerable when I want to be. And yeah, that's all I needed. And I remember I saw this documentary, The Trials of Gabriel, I think it's called on Netflix. Um, oh, I think yep. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, the whole, I, man, I didn't even you gotta be ready that. for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell you, twelve years I didn't cry, and that documentary was what allowed me to cry. Like I remember, I was holding myself back. I was like, nope, nope, let it go, let it go. It was like one scene in particular that did it for me, and I remember feeling like uh, sad and also happy that I was able to cry. Um, like holy shit, this is happening. What is this liquid coming out of my eyes? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's incredible. Like. Just like the restrictions that we place on ourselves, as men, right? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure there's women out there, right, um, who don't allow themselves to cry because they want to be tough. Like they learn that they can't. You know, um, it's tough. I'm gonna focus in a little more on this question, right? Because I always find this very interesting. And you're right, women do this thing where they don't cry because we, and I think that we're internalizing very heteronormative standards, right? And in this heteronormative world, this culture that we live in, the hierarchy, the, the, in the hierarchy, the, the one at the top is the, the uh, heterosexual white male, right? And this is the person who cannot, well, hmm. actually, I'm tripping myself up because I think that a lot of white men are very um, accepted in when it comes to them expressing their feelings um i think it's men of color actually who who kind of get the brunt of um the shame and correct me if i'm wrong because like how many white men do you know that go to therapy i know it's like super normal yeah, in that culture I, I still think it's right? less likely than white women right um i, so I, I think it's yeah. there's layers so being a man stops you and then being a man of color stops you even more so I think that's what's playing a role. Is it possible that you can name what it is that's stopping you from doing these things? Yeah. Right? Like, what does crying mean Oof. when it comes to being a man? And what it... Um, man. It's it's like a... So there's two things, right? One, in the, in the immediate moment, I feel like if I cry, I'm not going to be able to stop. It's like this, this like because I held it for so long, it's just going to burst and the, the water is just going to flow and I won't be able to stop it, right? So it's like this idea and I, 
it's illogical because obviously you can stop. You could, you could have your moments where you could cry. Like that took me some time to realize. Like, no, you could cry and then just stop. Uh, but I think that, that you need experience to really feel that. You need to cry often, I think, to realize, okay, I could cry and then keep it moving. I didn't have that experience, so I didn't know. I felt like if I cried, it's going to just gonna be nonstop. That's one. And I think deeper, and this, this took me some time to really process, but I just, excuse my language, like, I don't want to be a bitch, right? Like, it's these ideas of, like, no, if you cry, you're a, you're a pussy, you're a bitch. Like, this is the language that was used growing up. Um, and honestly, if a, and I'm giving myself some credit here, and to anyone who also believes that they can't cry, it's not that we are wrong, right, necessarily. Like, we grew up for with this idea for a reason. I couldn't allow myself to cry. In middle school, for example, or elementary school, you will be targeted. It was it was a defense mechanism. If you cried in front of your friends, you would they would never let you down. Like that's it's over. You're gonna be bullied. You're gonna be picked on. So it was a survival mechanism. Like okay, I can't allow myself to be this vulnerable here. Um, I'll just figure it out another way. In the home, like when your parents hit you, my mom in particular, my daughter, my father never hit me. But my mom would hit me. Um, and it got to the point where I, I stopped crying when I got hit because if I cried, then my mom would make a comment. Like, oh, you're 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 too grown, right? Like these are like I don't remember the language, but I remember feeling like I don't want my mom, even though she's hitting me, I don't want my mom to think that I'm a baby. Like I want I want her to realize that I'm a man. I'm growing up to be a man. All right. This is these are thoughts that were coming up at eight, nine years old. So, I mean, this took time for me to process, but, and, and like to look back on, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it was a safety thing when, when the eyes of men, cause I didn't want to be targeted. And it was also an acceptance thing for, in the eyes of women. Like I, I often feel like women hold these patriarchal ideas, right? Like what it means to be a man. Um, and you know, men know this, <laughs> you know, uh, they don't want to cry in front of their girlfriends, for example, yeah. their girlfriends, right. Their wives, mm-hmm. because they don't want to remove that fantasy that women, you know, hold. Um, so it's no one's fault. These are, these are ideas that permeate all of us. This is the patriarchal system we live in. Yeah, no, I agree with what you said about also women holding it up, because I think like we talk a lot about toxic masculinity and men are this and men do that. And I don't think that we as well, I'll speak for myself as a, as women, like know that we are also perpetuating toxic masculinity as well because if we're like oh yeah men should be allowed to cry and then you see a man crying and then what do you feel like in your body when you see a man crying and then what are you know like how is that that taking away this idea of of what a man is because I remember um you know like I had an ex that would cry often like he was very emotional was very open with it and I would get frustrated like can you just I wouldn't tell him but I'd just be like oh my god can you stop like why are you so emotional and it's like you know, like I was, I was also perpetuating that same idea. I also think it's um, one thing to say it, to be like, yeah, like I, you know, dismantle this. And then when you're confronted with it, you're like, oh, 
this is different. What do I like? What do I do when there's a man in front of me crying? Like, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not used to it. Like, how do you navigate that? So um, I think that that is an important point that we all have to kind of start to break that cycle, not just men. Absolutely. So this isn't mine, but I I have spoken to somebody, a couple of men actually, but one guy in particular asked me, why isn't that why is it that there's no such thing as toxic femininity? And that's it. And like we, that's his counterpart, right? Like if we're internalizing the, to- the toxins of the world, like why is it that women get to be the victims, right? Because, oh, we're, this thing is being done to us, but we're actually perpetuating as well. And men are the, the aggressors and men are the one, men are the ones who, who kind of have to take the brunt of it. So there is a part of me that, um, no, it's a huge part of me that, that finds it unfair. And like, I, I always wonder, like, what's it going to take for all of us to kind of, yes, acknowledge that this is something that permeates throughout our culture and this is something we're all affected by. But how are we as a collective going right, to right. make it better? That's, that's, there's layers to that, right? And I think the first part we can work on is ourselves, like always. Like, acknowledging when that happens. Like, oh, this is what I'm feeling when I see this man cry. Or this is what I'm feeling when I see myself cry. What does that mean? Uh, obviously for me, what I'm, what I'm dealing with now is understanding, like, I don't know, it's about balance in my head. And I know it's very simplistic, but the idea of like, you don't want to not cry ever. And you also don't want to cry all the time. Like if you're crying all the time, that there's something else happening. Like that's a message, you know, like, okay, what's, what am I, what's going on that I'm not really acknowledging? Um, and then, you know, go to therapy, figure it out. And, but, you know, I guess for me, it's like understand like you should allow yourself to cry. I know you spoke a little bit about, I guess, what you've learned um, about yourself in therapy. But there, has there been any like specific helpful tools that you've walked away with? Um, any daily practices that help you? Um, because you know, um, we talk a lot about doing the work, and therapy is a big piece of that. But if you don't practice what you learn in those. 50, 45, 50, 60 minutes um, and take it into your everyday life, it's not going to be sustainable. So is there anything specific, any concrete tools that you walked away yeah. with or use? Yeah, there's something I use every day and that's meditation. You, you know, we often hear about it. Like, oh yeah, like that's something other people do. <laughs> but like for me, it's like, nah, like I, I got to start. My therapist like really pushing it. Um, I was like, you know what, I'll try it. And man, it did wonders for me, I think. Like, I'm able to really see my thoughts in a meta level now. Like, what I, I can name my, like, the thoughts when I know I'm ruminating. So it doesn't stop the thoughts, but I'm able to acknowledge it. Like, oh, this is rumination. And I'm able to think, okay, do I have time to ruminate right now? Or can this happen tomorrow? Um, like, oftentimes before, like, my thoughts were uncontrollable. So it would be 1130 at night, I'm in bed. And my, my thoughts just are spiraling. And it feels like I have this urge to solve my problems at this moment. Like, okay, I need to solve all these problems right now. I got to figure it out. What is the fundamental truth, capital T truth, that I, I got to figure it out. I got to figure it out. But now I'm thinking, okay, am I really going to solve these complex problems at 11.30 or 12 midnight when I'm in bed? No. Let's save that for tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and I don't have that urge anymore to, to try to figure it out. But um. Just, just just acknowledging when you're ruminating and giving yourself the permission to be like, okay, nope, let's postpone this has been amazing. And that only happens, I think, 
through the mechanism of meditation. Like you need to, for me at least, I needed to meditate to really work on that muscle. Um, and there's many like meditation tactics online, um, strategies stuff. So I think it was worth experimenting. I tried a whole bunch and I figured out ones that work for me. So that's, I mean, that's one of the tools that I use. Thank you for sharing that. I guess, how have you taken in and internalized the new things that you've learned about yourself on an emotional level? Like how is, has this process redefined how you view yourself, how you view the world? Like how are you synthesizing this all? Yeah, <laughs> man. And it's uh, okay if you're still in the process of it. Cause I'm sure yep. you probably still are, but That's um, I guess. <laughs> always always yes, it's such always. a great question um i love it so bear with me here so i'm because i'm still working on this new theory that i have about the world and myself but i think i spoke about this with sasha actually um so just I'm integrating the ideas of capitalism also into the framework of like why i suffer a lot for like us so all start my identity so as a you know a man of color right so i realized and this is also in conjunction with like the black and white thinking the because of capitalism i think we often we have to like put data into things to measure ourselves right to compare ourselves because we got to be better right we gotta uh it's for powers for money right so oh you had to be six foot three like there's a number attached to that now to attraction you gotta you gotta lift this amount of weight in the gym right you gotta have uh i don't know this amount of money uh you know there's numbers attached to these things and it's only used to be uh, as a way to be able to easily compare yourself to others right because if you didn't have these numbers then we'll be more able to be more free and accepting like okay you're different I'm different. This, this, it's we have um, different value systems, or we can value different things about ourselves, and they'll be okay, right? Uh, but because we attach numbers, it's so easy. Six is larger than five, right? Like it's easier. So for me, is acknowledging that, and just the big fundamental shift for me is acceptance. And I know it's very simplistic, but just being able to see myself on the, uh, I don't know, third lens, third eye, I should say, uh, the meta level and just be content with myself. Like, this is this is who I am. I cannot compare myself to the people. I don't know everyone's stories. Um, I can only compare myself to what I was before. And I have been growing tremendously. Um, and I will continue to grow. And just accepting, like, oh, this is this is cool. Like, I, I like where I'm at. Uh, and that comes with gratitude as well. Like, holy shit, I have legs. Holy shit, I have arms. Like that's incredible that I'm able to jog every day. I have I'm I'm in a fucking PhD program. They're paying me to learn psychology to help others. I'm gonna you know, like this is incredible. And just finding those pockets of, of gratitude for yourself. Um not to invalidate your the hardships, but to you know, both can coexist, right? And self compassion as well. Like when you fuck up to tell yourself, hey, it's all right. Just that, that same compassion that you show others, showing it with yourself. 
like uh if it's easier to like for me i started off with like the inner child work and just like picture myself as a little child and just like talking to myself that way now i don't have to think about it like that i could just see myself for what i am and say nah it's all right man don't worry about it uh you got it next time like there's so many things i could talk about <laughs> but that's a perspective i guess um just having more compassion for myself and now you know i started with compassion with others and then they started coming back to me like hey how, how come i'm not being compassionate with myself it's not fair so i love that you pointed that out because i i firmly believe this and i say it all the time we're social beings and we can't function without each other so <laughs> even though you know we it, it, and this goes in line with your capitalistic your capitalism theory right we're so individualistic and we think that we have to kind of do things for our own. But the minute we start doing things for others, it reflects back to us. And we're also learning. And that's a, that's a really good way to, to figure out how we could function. Right? Like I'm also in that process of trying to get out of this mindset where like, I have to do this all by myself and, mm -hmm. and I'm reaching out to people when I need them now. And it's like, there's this a lot of shame when it's like, Oh, you didn't do it by yourself, but it, it comes, but then I'm recognizing that that's just a, I don't know. It's it's not healthy. It's not. Yeah, I could do it by myself. But what really is it going to change the outcome? Is it going to change me actually getting there? And then at least when I reach out to other people, there's connection, there's closeness. You know, there's yes. good things happening in your brain. Actually, it's a, on a very physical level. This is not just like some figurative thing we're talking about here, right? We're so helpful to each other, and we've steered so far away from that concept. It's literally was like the way we function for, you know ever as humans right like the most fun i've had in research was in groups um like i hate doing research i'm just me in the phd program i hate doing research alone hate it but i work when a with a group like i have like this uh i have two friends in my cohort who i do research with it's so fun just sharing ideas and like all right you could get this study and search the resources here uh you take the references for this and we just work together and it's like who would have thought they like, could be so fun? Like it, it, you don't have to do things alone. Um, you don't at all. Uh, but we structure our society that way, unfortunately. So, you know, we really appreciate everything that you've shared with us. Um, I think it's also nice to, to hear a little bit about um, your process, considering that you're also like a mental health professional or very much on your way to becoming a mental health professional officially, even though to my eyes, you already are. Um, <laughs> so um, is yes. Uh, so do you have a message out there for our listeners, specifically men? Um, if they're thinking about therapy, if they're struggling with anything, like just any message that you would want to share with other men about therapy. Yeah. Um, for sure. So this is another another perspective I've been, you know, uh, contemplating. None of my ideas are are mine, right? Like these are borrowed ideas, obviously. Even the capitalism one. But so there's this there's this metaphor that I got from um, acceptance and commitment therapy um, act. It's idea of like the cup that's that has salt in it, uh, water, right? A cup of water with salt in it, and the idea of like we often think that to solve our problems, like a salty cup of water, you have to remove the salt from the water. It's like, that's an almost impossible task. So instead you want to dilute it, add more water to it, right? So uh, to bring that back to men, the masculinity, 
Um, I think about toxic masculinity as like the salt. But instead of like trying to undo toxic masculinity, what you need to do is, you know, add more water, which is positive masculinity, right? It doesn't have to be bad. So when I think about what it means to be a man, the ideas of strength, resiliency, those are all good things. It's just that it takes a, a turn when it, you know, in certain contexts. Um, like on a, on a fundamental level, we can all agree that being brave is good, right? But then there's this other layer that comes along where being brave turns into violence. It's like, oh, no, I'm not going to let him disrespect me like that, right? But now, you know, going taken back to positive masculinity, there's this other layer of bravery where it's like looking into yourself and thinking, why was I so disrespected? What was it about this interaction that hurt me? And using the words like hurt, right? Like, oh, I was hurt. That is so vulnerable. That is uh, invokes so much fear, right? So much shame. Um, but it's brave, it's to look at yourself like that um, and to look and say, okay, yeah, this is, I'm going to be very vulnerable right now. However, there's nothing you can say that can hurt me because I've already accepted this for myself. So that's a new layer, I think, that I've, I'm trying to you know, tackle um, for myself to say vulnerability is bravery. So that's, that's what it means to be a man for me. So yeah, in that same vein, go to therapy, be vulnerable, be brave. Um, and tackle your problems head on. Thank you so much for for sharing with us. And I will say, I'm, I'm not a man, but I'm gonna take that with me. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna give it my own little spin. Um, so that was our episode. Thank you everyone so much for listening to Ramon's story. I hope that it was helpful. I really enjoy um, listening to other people and their process. So I hope that you have as well. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at never told us pod. And if you have any questions or want to connect with us, make sure to send us an email at never told us pod at gmail.com. And make sure to come back next week so we can tell you what they never told us.